Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we continue our two-part conversation with Andrea Rumler. Andrea is a licensed clinical counselor, yoga teacher, golf coach, and nature enthusiast. Last week's episode is centered around Andrea's personal journey into yoga and counseling, so we'd recommend listening to it as a starting point. This week, we discuss a wide range of topics related to physical and emotional health, including overcoming judgment, expanding our identity boxes, and doing shadow work. Andrea shares how she balances self-care and client care, as well as some of the insightful questions she uses to find this balance. We also discuss the power of Mother Nature, live music, and group events. We hope you enjoy this episode of Discover More with us and Andrea Rumler. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. One of my favorite quotes of Buddhists, we study Buddhism not to be a better Buddhist, but to be a better whatever you are. So we can use a lot of these things. We don't have to be a strict Buddhist, follow this pattern every single day. You most likely can, right? We have that option as well. But integrating those kinds of of thoughts and behaviors into our everyday life, no matter what you are. So we can still be that accountant that's Buddhist, right? It's just so we don't want them to be clashing. But oftentimes we live in this life where we we create those boxes for ourselves. Uh, I'm an accountant, so I can only do this, this and this. And that looks this certain way. Or I'm a counselor. I can only do this because it looks like this, this and this, right? Like we're creating those mental boxes in our lives where we're only sticking to that. So whether it's a a vocalized portion of those words or internalized, uh, we have many boxes in our life. So just trying to get down to that baseline foundational work of no, who really am I? Uh, What does that self look like without all of those ego identities? So exactly what you said, having that be, I'm compassionate or I'm a learner, I'm a being, I'm, you know, X, Y, and Z changes how we operate in this world too. So I think that was a beautiful thing that you said, just evaluating and not all boxes are bad that we live in, right? But just trying to see how we interact with each of those. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that almost, I feel, demands the question of how do we expand our boxes? How do we get out of these boxes? Because it's such a beautiful point that like all boxes that we're in are ultimately self-imposed. But really, how do you think about either getting into new boxes, expanding our own box? I don't know what way of the analogy we want to run with here, but how do you think about that either in your own personal life or even with clients that are trying to work through either, you know, significantly difficult or traumatic experiences or even just someone that wants to up level their life, you know, either go from, you know, traumatized to content or happy to absolutely thriving, but really expanding our lives in beneficial ways. How do you kind of think about that? Or we could say, how do we discover more boxes? Zing. Yes, yes, beautiful. That was great. Uh, I am in favor of getting rid of all the boxes. We can still serve purposes without the boxes, but 
I think it goes back to, and then Aiden said expanding those in a way too. So like it goes back to that root. Are we able to think about why we created those boxes for ourselves? What purpose is that serving? What was our intention behind that? Okay, now how can we reform that to maybe improve some other things in our life? So especially for my victims of trauma, survivors of trauma clients that I work with that have so many self-defeating thoughts and ideas about themselves, oftentimes given from people around them, right? Like you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, like all these things. So being able to shed themselves of those, but they're so deeply rooted. So being able to get back to why do we feel that way? What does that thought pattern look like once we notice that we are having those thoughts? Because typically they're so enmeshed and ingrained that we don't even know that we're operating with those subconscious thoughts. So I think getting back to that root, which is so beautiful um, for the talk therapy, integrating like the body work too, because our body might be able to give us some of those clues without, maybe we're not there mentally yet, but our body can let us know too. Uh, no, I don't like the way that looks on me, right? Like that might be a saying that I listen for to know that they're operating in that box. So then we try to figure out um, a question I usually like to ask is whose voice do you hear in your head when you, when you say those things, right? When you hear those things, when you feel those things, Whose voice do you hear in your head? And that just gave me chills too, because oftentimes that unlocks something for somebody. They're like, oh crap, that was my dad. You know, like I was told that my whole childhood. Okay, maybe, maybe that's not right. Maybe he wasn't right for that. Maybe that's not what I think about myself. So getting to that root point of why do we think that way can be that what opens those doors for people to explore those boxes, to expand them, to shrink them, to get rid of them, put them on the street for sale, right? We want to get rid of those boxes, something that's not really serving us. So I forget what the original question was, so I hope that answered that. But I think just being able to evaluate our subconscious biases even uh, and how we are interacting with the world and ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That is such a powerful question that I'm definitely going to have to unpack off the mic at a later time because, I mean, that's one of the things we speak a lot about is like better questions, better answers. And one of the questions I've been asking myself a lot is just basically, how does this feel? Just in Mm -hmm. any basic experience, even if it's like walking into a new room or walking down the street, but really trying to build awareness around those things has been exceptionally helpful. And one of the ideas that's been coming up through a lot of these conversations that we've having that's personally been a struggle I've been working through that I think almost seems to be a struggle that plagues society right now is the idea of judgment, both of external judgment with other people and then internal judgment within our own inner critics or self narratives. So how do you think about that? You know, I think we always have to have opinions around what's happening in the external world. Like there's definitely Mm -hmm. judgments that we might be projecting, but also opinions that we have to have around how things work in society. So how do you navigate either in your own internal life or when you're talking through these issues with clients, just judgment as a whole, navigating it? I know it's a meaty subject. There's no clear answers, but Mm -hmm. as someone with this wide-ranging and very specific experience how do you think about judgment so i think i talked about when i first started this yoga and kind of mindfulness journey i was so like gung-ho about it i was telling everybody and this this and this and you have to do this you have to do that right so i was still in that initial phase of self-reflection and now i am much more internal about it but i think just being able to Because like you said, there are values that we have to live on that dictate kind of our actions that matter. Those things matter in the real world. So how to separate those things from judgments. 
So I try to explain, especially to my students, some things that are not helpful are those negative judgments, whether it is towards somebody else or ourselves, things that we don't need, right? Is that statement helping anybody? Why do we have to vocalize those things? Why do we have to make that judgment about somebody else, whether it's like physical or other things that they do? Those are not going to change our well-being. It's only going to hurt us too. So that is a big, big concept in Buddhism. And meditation has helped me get to that point where like just being in that rooted, still foundation of love. And that's really what I try to focus on is my center and radiating that out instead of things that are going to kind of bring us down mentally too. Not even just hurting others, but takes us to kind of a lower place, right? Like when we impose those judgments. So why do we even have to say them? You know, like I am all for the getting rid of those judgments and meditating for long amounts of time have definitely helped me because you can't run very long on judgments. So what's sustainable? What's going to help me grow in a way that I'd like to? I think in a way it also goes for circle into your practice and your beliefs and Buddhism practices, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about Buddhism as a religion, I don't know too much about it. And if any of this sounds like crap to you, just call me out. Feel free to do so. <laughs> but from my own reading and understanding of the Buddhism as mm-hmm. religion, Buddha is this entity, this being who was a prince, obviously, of this great empire. And he left on a journey uh, 40 days, I believe, of his own. And he became a Buddha, right? He gave everything up. And so I think the eliminations or eradication of judgment is literally in the foundation and the core principles of Buddhism itself. It's like the founding member, he gave up the societal judgments and he gave up what the society viewed him as this perfect prince who had everything within his power, who was born into this golden spoon, literally, who gave all that up to pursue this journey of oneself. Um, But I do want to touch upon what you shared earlier. The Buddhism side and judgment side is the boxes. It is important to eliminate the boxes that are disservicing us. But like you talked about very adequately earlier, you don't have to eliminate all the boxes, right? Not all boxes are for sale. Some are, but not all. And he talks about the individuality, the nuances that you've alluded to this throughout this entire interview so far, whether it's with yourself, whether it's meeting with your clients, your patients, whatever. Um, So with that being said, I don't want to leave the listeners on a cliffhanger for too long. I I promise we'll talk about trauma-informed yoga and Western yoga. I think this is a perfect segue, talking about the judgment piece, whether it's yourself or with others, talking about the founding principles of Buddhism, the elimination judgments. Now, how do you view the boxes of just Western yoga as a whole? And how do you view the box of trauma-informed yoga? Because you talked very briefly about some of the downsides you've experienced when a sacred practice like yoga becomes monetized. Right, mm-hmm. or become gentrified into this mm-hmm. Western mainstream hip thing, some of this essence healing powers are lost, but not all. Uh, like we talked about, Western yoga still serves a huge purpose and is still a saving grace for a lot of people, even with the wrong incentives and the modalities attached to that. So we'd love for you as the expert on the topic to dive into what those two boxes look like and talk about the nuances of it and how you self-approach them as a whole. Mm -hmm. And Western yoga might be a box in my head that I need to evaluate too, right? Because not every studio is serving those negative purposes that I'm alluding to. So I do want to say that like there's a lot of studios doing the good work out there too. But that Western yoga box in my mind is that monetized culture, taking something from a different culture that they don't truthfully understand or live by or practice um, and are doing it just because it's kind of like a fad, right? It's become something that's like, yep, going to my yoga class, um, hot yoga is something special for me too. Like I feel like a lot of people do it just for the fitness, which is 
not entirely bad, right? Like to better your physical being and do it in the way of yoga is not wrong in its root cause either. So um, just being aware of the purpose and the intent and the knowledge behind the studios, I think is what I'm really after. So having people really understand where it's from, the roots of yoga and the practices and the practitioners that came before us and honoring them and holding that safe place. So leading into the trauma-informed discussion for yoga, I feel like a lot of studios are still lacking in that right now. in just that understanding, and that will take some evolution as well. I'm not saying we can't get there, but I think with a lot of work we could. I've heard so many horrific stories of women being in yoga classes and a male or female instructor, yoga instructor coming up behind them and doing the physical modifications. And can you imagine how re-traumatizing that would be if you were someone that experienced assault, whether sexual, physical, you know, whatever it may be your body is not safe anymore. And that's taught to you again. So you're already going into the yoga class feeling unsafe. And now this person unconsensually put their hands on you again to move your body in a way that maybe you weren't ready for. So I think a lot of studios have a lot of work to do regarding that. Um, Another thing is time. So for trauma, just like we said, that part of our brain goes offline. The amygdala and hippocampus as well are really affected by trauma. So trauma survivors really like to know when things are going to be over because when you're in that trauma world, it feels never ending, right? That hippocampus kind of blurs those memories and what's moving forward and in the past. And it's just all kind of blurred and you feel like you're stuck in that trauma loop. So when you go into a class and everything's kind of ambiguous of, you know, we'll be in here for a little while. We'll be in this pose for a little while. That can be really anxiety ridden for trauma. And this is not for everybody, right? But those people who are still in that state, this can be very traumatizing to them because they're not sure how long they're going to be there or what the next pose looks like. So just that awareness of how trauma has impacted the body. And like we talked about before, not forcing a language on them that they're not ready for. So breathing into your body or just being aware of the language that you use, the space that you're holding and your intentions behind it, I think is that gap that we, we've we been talking about bridging and that balance this whole time, I think is that work that I'd like to see more of in the yoga world. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you mentioned, it really undertones a lot of the mental health concepts that we have been talking about. And I guess I've never put together the trauma-informed yoga portions partially because I've only really done YouTube versions of yoga itself, but it definitely makes me curious of like, if this is one type of yoga, what other different modalities are A, out there, or B, do you have the most enthusiasm for? You mentioned Kundalini earlier. Is there a specific way that you practice and teach, or is it kind of like an integrative model, kind of like the counseling approach that you have? Most classes offered in just a normal studio are vinyasa. There are some studios that are specific, like Iyengar is more of the body movements and strict outlines of those movements and sequences. But most studios, and this is kind of what I'm used to, is that vinyasa or ashtanga, the sequences, the natural flowing, um, the fluidity of the movements too. So combining the, the breath with the body, asanas, postures, things like that. So that's kind of what I subscribe to. For my own personal practice, it's whatever my body needs for that day, which has been a a cool journey too, because that allows me some time to sit with myself and how do I, how does my body need to move today? So it's, it's kind of off script, but that's kind of what yoga is too, right? Like combining our breath with movements and noticing our body and being able to sit with that. So I'd say that's my own personal practice. 
For trauma-informed, restorative is always amazing because it is, not always, most of the time very amazing because it is those slower movements, more intentional behind them. Um, It's usually less intrusive, especially if you're not at a trauma-specific yoga studio or class that you're watching online. Restorative is usually a a really good practice for that because it naturally integrates a lot of those concepts. Uh, A lot of the faster pace, more physically intensive work might not be for all trauma survivors. Obviously, at some point, absolutely. Just kind of gauging their readiness. So I'll never jump into Kundalini with somebody who has not done that inner work or feels safe yet to enter that space. Kundalini is my personal favorite because it is pretty demanding. And the the feeling that I get after is otherworldly. So I really, really enjoy the 10 bodies practice for Kundalini yoga, but that's not something I would sit down with one of my, my trauma clients and do right away. So definitely different types. It is integrated and individual where they're at again. I have a personal question. Uh, since we're talking about your identity as a golf coach, your identity as a, a yoga instructor, I want to go back into your identity as a clinical counselor. So I know you, you told us that obviously there's a lot of different modalities for therapy, for counseling. And one of the primary modalities that a lot of practitioners and clinicians uh, abide by is CBT, right? Cognitive Behavior Therapy, or as we know as talk therapy. And you told us during our previous call, discovery call, you told us that you're a thinker. It's very obvious that you're, you're very intelligent, but a lot of the intelligence is from your ability to think a lot. How do you balance your thinker personality and your feeler approach as a counselor, especially as a CBT inspired practitioner? Because cognitive behavior therapy is mainly founded in a whole thinking approach to things, as I'm sure you understand the mechanism behind that. And on the same time, on top of that, I see you as a meddling ground because you have that feminine identity as a woman. So you already have that feminine fluidity. You're more in tune with your feelings. You're more in tune with your body than I am as a masculine energy driver. And it's very apparent, right? The masculine and the feminine energies. And I'm still working on my intersectionalities. So just love to see how you do that balancing act and how that approach shines through with your work with your clients. So I think I'm equally thinker-feeler, which is a tornado of everything, right? So I have spent a lot of time in my own personal work doing exactly what you're talking about. In which ways am I benefiting from my thinking hats and which ways am I benefiting from my feeling? So Aiden, I would love to repeat what you said earlier. Does How does this feel, right? So like if I am wearing my thinking hat and I know that I'm going maybe too far, I have to have that awareness to reel it back in. And what usually helps me is integrating my feelings, but being present in them. So not applying too much meaning or, you know, heaviness to my feelings, but being able to just experience them is something that is really good for me and a good practice to bring me out of that thinking pattern or loop. Thinking isn't all bad, as we know, we love to think we are thinking beings and that inspires growth and learning and all those beautiful, awesome things about being human. But a concept that I always like to come back to is is just being in the moment and experiencing. And then that usually helps me think about my feelings a little bit more. How does this make me feel? How am I going to move forward? How can I pull in those thoughts that I love so dearly and moving forward in ways that can be a good balance, right? Like be that bridging work that we've been talking about. And I really balance is like the key word in my life. How can I be that philosopher, loving reader, but also be somebody who is outgoing and enthusiastic and expresses my feelings because they can definitely, we're fluid beings. We can go from 
you know, one to the other very quickly and very seamlessly. How can I integrate all of my loves into that? So that self-awareness and allowing yourself space to do that. I always talk about like creative space for my clients and it's amazing what they come up with, like ways that, because yoga is creative, ways that we can move our body when we need to. If you need to dance, you need to dance. If you need to sing, you got to let it out, you know, like there's so many different ways to integrate the two of what we are thinking and feeling, but have it be a part of that CBT model of behavioral activation. So how can we take that homework that I send home with my clients, right? That's part of CBT and and noticing the patterns of their thoughts. Well, now what? What are we going to do with that, right? We have to integrate those patterns and behaviors and models that we are gathering from ourselves. How can we move forward with those? So I'd say it's a balance for me. I have to know when I am feeling more studious and when I need those six hour philosophy conversations with my friends versus when I want to go out and just dance, which I need both, you know? So being able to tell when you need both. It almost seems like I'm piecing together. Please correct me if I'm misreading, but like thinking seems like an awareness, whereas feeling might be kind of like the integration that you mentioned of like taking realizations away from how the thinking worked. This might be my own reflection on my own experience, but like, do you think about it in a similar way with yourself or clients? Like thinking brings those things to light or awareness and then the processes or the practices of dancing, singing, yoga is more like feeling based or do you see them always kind of like interweaving and kind of interchange together? Yeah, I think you have to have one with the other really. Um, and when we don't, it can lead to some of those deficits or dissonance things in our in our cognitive capabilities too. So not saying that feeling isn't thinking because to be feeling that too, like we're still using our brain, we're still using our body and just like when we are for thinking and that's the age old argument too in, in psychology, like how do emotions arise? Is it the thinking first and then the emotion or how does that work? How do we process that? So that's a really cool um, topic as well, but I think they have to go hand in hand. And I think to help improve our self-awareness can improve both of those areas. So not to say that when I'm feeling, uh, I'm not thinking or you know acting in a studious way or integrating what I've been thinking, I think they have to go together. But just having that awareness of when you maybe need a different form of each. Mm, balancing the two. Is that a chicken and the egg kind of situation of which one comes first, the thinking or feeling? You mentioned it comes up in a lot of your studies. Is that no one knows we're still figuring it out or? A lot of um, theories about it. And I'm sure Ben can tell you more about them too. But just like, you know, how emotions form in our body. So how does it go through the brain, which has its own processes too. But is it the thinking that comes from the feeling or is it, you know, are we aware of our thoughts first and then we go back and kind of think about them. So I'd say it's individual too and, and kind of your patterns and your practices. Speaking of the balancing act itself, uh, I want to ask you a question because uh, like we briefly touched upon that it's funny because you said that you wanted to pick a career that's not too prone to burnout. But we all obviously talked about how counseling and therapy space is very prone to burnout, exceptionally so, yet you chose this anyway for hosts of different reasons. But obviously your love for the people, your compassionate core being that we alluded to was a huge driving factor. But with all that being considered, burnout is becoming ever more alarming and prevalent, period especially through COVID pandemic, I know the depression anxiety rate has quadrupled, which means effectively the workload and the emotional burden for you has quadrupled directly, right? So how are you balancing the balancing act of advocating for yourself, the self-efficacy 
and advocating for others, which are evident through your, not just one identity, but all your identities as a therapist, counselor, and coach? That's an age old question too. How are the counselors taking care of themselves? Uh, my supervision meetings right now too, this is a hot topic for us because our work will be never ending. Uh, we will never be out of jobs, which is fortunate and unfortunate, right? Uh, so great question. Thank you for posing that to me. How do I balance self advocacy for myself and others? So I think that it goes back to really being intentional with my time. Uh, when I'm at work, I'm giving my all and I am doing what I can to help my students and staff and improving areas that I have that time and space for ways that I'm allowed to, right? Because I can always think of ways that I could be doing more, that I am not achieving enough, that I'm not meeting those, you know, really high up goals that I have for my counseling program at school, or I can focus on those tangibles of things that I'm improving right here and right now, especially during this high intensity, high anxiety ridden time. So I teach my students about small goals every day. So I really have to integrate that in my own life too. What do I really want to accomplish today? How is that playing into some of my bigger goals? But how can I really get some good stuff done today? And that transfers over to my own life too. Like when I'm outside of work, uh, I keep firm boundaries. And this is something that I talk about frequently to like friends, family, everybody. I love boundaries. I love them so dearly. They're hard too. They're not easy. I talk about that a lot with clients. Boundaries can be really tough. It feels kind of yucky when we're not used to boundaries to set them, but they are life-changing to me. And it's something that has saved my mental health being a counselor. When I leave work, that is it for work for that night. I am not going to open up my laptop. And even if I just have this one email to do, I'm very firm with that. So I leave work and now it's time for my own personal fulfillment of things that I want to do. So I try to not fill my time, but fill my time with things that I love, right? So I give myself time to rest when I need it. But I also try to do those activities that I know will benefit me and improve my mental health and well-being. So allowing myself that space to, to do what I talk about, really. So that's how I advocate for myself, too. Keeping those boundaries, saying no when I want to say no is huge. Saying yes when I want to say yes, when I would do something that's out of the ordinary for me, maybe. But advocating for others at that same time. So this is going to sound kind of antagonistic, but noticing again how my actions do advocate for others. So when I do go out, if I need like a shopping spree, that's very rare and few and far between. But when I do feel like I need that, uh, I try to do like local stores, sustaining fair trade products. So that's a way of, of doing something that I need, but still advocating for others. So to not create that dissonance in my own value system. But I think that's a really beautiful way to kind of combine those, those things that we care about while having time for myself to go do what I want. So when I go out and kayak or hike, like, am I picking up some trash when I see it? You know, like things like that. So that stuff makes me feel really good is when I am still advocating for social justice in the world, but still allowing myself to have time to recharge. That's a really interesting lens to have around self-care. It's almost like using self-care by voting for the things that you believe in or like living in alignment as a version <laughs> of self-care. 
that's really fascinating because there's almost a narrative that, especially after the pandemic, right, that self-care is curling up with a bottle of wine and a Netflix <laughs> marathon. But really, there's so many different modalities to the self-care. It's different from person to person. But I think the lens that you just talk through in your own life, it's like self-care as things that make you feel good because they're in alignment with what you care about. Is that something mm -hmm. that you kind of preach with clients as well that, you know, it's different from time to time and person to person, but really like self-care as a centerpiece. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feelings around of how you teach it and preach it. Sure. And I think self-care is not always pretty. So sometimes self-care is sitting down with your journal and going through like some of your self-defeating beliefs about yourself too. Self-care is not always going to be focused on the positives. I do that quite a bit in my meditation. Like when I reflect on, you know, maybe something that was challenging for that week, that's my self-care too, because I'm giving myself that time to, to integrate and be aware of things that have happened earlier in my life. So yeah, I try to teach my clients to meet themselves again, wherever they're at. If they are noticing a pattern that is difficult for them, that self-care is giving yourself some time to, to sit with it. You know, I'll say these same, same words to them because that is, that's honoring yourself too. Like in yoga, if you allow yourself to just have an hour to yourself, that is self-care. That is honoring what you need at that time. So, and I'd say that's a, a good way to sum it up. It is honoring what you need and doing it at an appropriate time too. So first we have to have that awareness of ourselves of what that self-care would look like. You know, is it, is it a rough, challenging hike that's going to make you sweaty and something really physical? Or do you need to be in Shavasana for two hours and just kind of lay and be connected to the floor, right? Do you need to be outside gardening? Is that your form of self-care because you need that hand in the soil benefit, right? Do you need to be outside in the sun? So it looks so many different ways. Do you need to be at a sporting event to feel connected? Because that's what you care about too. So being able to recognize the shifts when we need it, because we all go through those ebbs and flows, like my self-care tomorrow will look different than what it will today. So honoring what we need at any given time and honoring the parts that might be a little bit more challenging. So shadow work is something that I like to touch on a little bit too, is sitting with those, those darker parts of myself that is still part of who I am and maybe those negative patterns that I have. So yeah, just honoring what you need. It's awesome you brought up the shadow work because that was the next question that came to mind as you were talking because it's almost a funny intersection of the point that you made of honoring what we need and then diving into the darkest and most difficult parts of our lives. Like it's just a funny, funny balance between the two. But I guess why is shadow work important? Like what are some of the things that come up for people? I guess another question that kind of loops in what we've talked about is like, when do you recommend people to do shadow work? Because there's definitely got to be a timing thing of like where people are at in their specific work. If people are, you know, still trying to keep their head above water, diving into their biggest vulnerabilities might not be the best look for kind of obvious reasons. So how do you think about that? How do you integrate it? Just shadow work as a whole is something that we're starting to learn more about, but I'd love for you to share with the audience around also, if you can quickly define and describe what shadow work is for people who are not familiar with the concept. So shadow work is more so dealing and sitting with those vulnerabilities that we have and maybe those actions that we're not so happy with. Um, it could be coming from our past, you know, and what we've been through and what we've learned. Really noticing our interactions and how they hurt or help others, I think, is a huge part of shadow work. 
and our thoughts too. So when people enter counseling, they're doing a lot of shadow work too, right? Because those negative beliefs about themselves are at the forefront of their minds. So shadow work is really just sitting with those and being able to establish, you know, where those are coming from, what that looks like, the thoughts that maybe are not fun to think about is how I just sum up shadow work. So those fears and judgments that I have about myself, sit with that for 10 minutes, Steve, and you know, see how you feel after that. Uh, but I think it can be a really positive thing too, because it's it's just that learning and growing and evolving about ourselves and how we interact with the world. So while we may not have imposed all of those thoughts on ourselves, we have the say now and we have the power to to kind of change those. So I think that's a really beautiful thing coming from shadow work. It's not always this super depressing type stuff. It can be really beneficial and useful. It's interesting to see. I did it a lot last summer. I went through a, a huge relationship change. I moved during the pandemic to a different city. So it was very challenging for me. And the first thing I did when I got in my new apartment was bought a new journal and did like an eight week shadow work program, something that I just found online and has like journal prompts for me. And it was, I ended up in tears uh, after a lot of them, but it was something that I needed. So that was my self-care at that time because I really wanted to reestablish my thoughts and behaviors and my actions and, and thoughts towards myself. So yeah, that's definitely what I needed at that time. And I knew that, which is not uh, a time that you would think somebody would want to sit down and with their worst parts of themselves right after that and feeling so alone. So definitely going back to Aiden's question too, you have to feel safe with yourself and feel like you have the supports in place coming out of those because it's not that time for everybody. I wouldn't encourage that unless I really felt that somebody was there and ready to take that on because looking at our own vulnerabilities and shortcomings uh, can be kind of hard. So definitely have to be in that mental space and head space to feel supported. Yeah, I just want to slap an additional cautious label warning on this uh, because uh, shadow work has a lot of very, very important and crucial but also very delicate component yes. to yeah. uh, identity work. Yes. And a lot of shadow work does shatter a lot of the previous identities people thought about themselves in a very groundbreaking and very earth shattering ways. But the process is extremely arduous and can be very, very deeply painful. It is very important work and everyone should do it uh, when they're ready for it, but it is very delicate work. And then the way I also think about shadow work is like the human figures, right? Every human lawyer's human figures, when you walk under the sun, there's a shadow behind us. That means the shadows are inherently part of who we are. So there is no point of like the terms like overcoming your shadows or overcoming your past. Uh, it's like saying like overcoming your anxiety or overcoming your anger or overcoming your... There's nothing to overcome with because they're part of who you are. You have to come into partnership with, which is what you alluded early on, right? Just like your shadow, just like your trauma. You don't have to overcome your trauma. You just have to come yep. to peace with them because they are literally part of who you are. I do want to share that to highlight the importance of shadow work, but it is very delicate. So really appreciate you sharing that. And also through this, I once again hear the theme of eliminating judgment. Right? Like you talked about, self-care looks different for everyone. And sometimes I judge myself for not being too personal development guru enough when I'm doing self-care. Like sometimes I feel like shit, you know, like during my depressive episode two weeks ago with my fight, I felt horrible. I didn't want to do anything. So I just didn't do anything. I just, I binge watched, I think YouTube for like four hours straight and I watched Netflix the next three days and I didn't really do anything, you know, and I felt better. It was healing for me at the time. But now, obviously, once I got out of that headspace, I became more constructive and I started journaling. I started to talk to my therapist and all that came afterwards. Um, but 
uh, it is very profound for me that even the elimination of judgments can be seen through self-care. Yes, thank you. One of the things that's coming up for me around a lot of the things we've been talking about, and it's definitely a pivot away from shadow work, but I think ties into judgment a lot, is my experience with live music in general. And that's ultimately what brought us together is meeting at Bonnaroo like three or four years ago. We were just camping next to each other and, you know, watch live shows together and then friends from the jump. So for me at live music, sometimes I found myself feeling so judged or judging others so much that sometimes I wasn't able to fully enjoy the live moment. I mean, Granted, I could argue that maybe the substances I had consumed, whether it was alcohol or weed, was allowing me to like overthink things or remove myself from those specific experiences. But really, once I realized that I feel judgment represents the law of reciprocity in that if you judge other people less, then you likely feel less judged, which was a huge game changer for me and just you know, whether it's going into the gym and not worrying about what other people are doing that worry about me or in the case of live music, how I can enjoy the show, really. It allows me to enjoy the present moment. Um, and I'd love to kind of explore how you think about live music as almost a healing process. Because for me, that was one of the things that brought me out of my shell the most, whether it was being around large groups of strangers or connecting with other people that you had just met over like this shared experience of live music. Um, I found for myself, it really helped me get out of that inner monologue, the inner critic of just always thinking or really just feeling about what's going on in the world and interjected me into the present moment of the show that's there. So certainly large scale question, but you know, your relationship with live music, how has it changed the way that you see yourself in the world? So many parts that I want to address in that um, group and social psychology is so fascinating to me. And I think it hits on a lot of points that you talked about there, Aiden, is it can bring so many benefits too, but we are still like these these social beings that we need approval from other people in certain aspects, you know, like we need to know that we want to feel liked and we want to feel welcomed. So in those regards, removing judgments can be really hard when we're in a setting that we are with people we don't know, maybe. So we're trying to act a certain way and fulfill those identities that we put on ourselves. So which is different from than we would if we were alone, right? So it's interesting to see how humans adjust when they're in a group, one. Um, but yeah, I think once you get to that point of being able to separate yourself and be fully conscious and aware of your surroundings and kind of letting those go, it can be such a, a healing and sacred time. So I'm with you, live music does something to the soul. And I think people for, for centuries have known that, right? We're so attracted to that form of expression and creation and bonding. And we're watching somebody do what they love, right? They're creating and sharing with us a part of themselves that we didn't know before. And we get to do that in a way that makes us feel more connected to others. And we're in a space with new friends, how exciting, right? And we're around all these new people that we don't see every day. And it's just a beautiful, sacred thing to me. So I, I definitely agree. And, and once you allow yourself to kind of strip those judgments and identities you're able to fully immerse yourself in those vibrations really like in those movements and what you're feeling and seeing because words and tones make us feel things too right from the music so just what music does to our brain add on top the live aspect of it and then add on top of that the community aspect of it so so many different layers that are so beautiful, I think, to, to live music and experiencing that with humans. And I heard on a talk show lately on my way to work that 
that's like a huge detriment that we're seeing right now in mental health because people can't go to sporting events or just events of any kind, really. And even just to be in that space with other people has such positive psychological, physiological effects on us. So we're moving past that surface level of what do they think about me to this shared event that can be so good for us. So I'm with you. Live music rocks. Is there a specific reason for why we feel so good around other people? Like it might be biological or like the fact that we're tribal creatures, but like, I mean like massive amounts of people. Like when we went to Bonnaroo a few years ago, like that was the first time I walked into a place and literally felt different just from like the people around us. I thought maybe at like, you know, the shows themselves, the idea of group flow state really comes up for me of like, everyone knows flow state of like, you know, going surfing or rock climbing or whatever that is. But being in group flow is an entirely different thing where like everyone is engaged around a singular focused idea. Like everyone's, you know, thought processes, feeling is all directed in one specific thing, like that cohesion or sense of unity. But I'm wondering, you know, is there any specific reasons for that of like what makes that such a biologically like satisfying or uplifting experience? Yeah, we are communal beings. So we love being connected to the humans around us, especially just like you said, when there is a shared goal, whether that's to experience the live music or, you know, see the art venues that were happening there too, and sharing in that realm of the reciprocity as well, like enjoying what other people have created with a group is so amazing for our brain. I'm a random fact lover, like I'll drop these at parties sometimes, right? So I think I read a study a few years ago that said, and this is so fascinating to me, you know how we sit by a babbling brook, right? And that can be really calming to our brain. So like that frequency, that frequency is recreated when there's a large group of people. So like the muffled sounds of them talking, when you can't really hear the words that they're saying, but we're surrounded by that has the same effect. It's called like pink noise, same effects on the brain as if we're sitting by a really calming lake or body of water. So physiologically too, it has calming effects on our body, like to just sit in a crowd and not be able to hear exactly, but you hear the murmurs and you hear the fluctuations of their tones. Like we are such a part of nature and we recreate those things by being in a group where it's positive, right? So maybe a riot or like a protest, not so much. That might not be so calming. But when you are in that state of relaxation, but a shared goal and connectivity with a community, it can be so amazing. So like high school sporting events, even you're sitting on the side with your team, you have that pride flowing within you, you see them and you want them to do well, that can be so good for us. So really connecting with others. Yeah, it's like the beta waves, right? But I mean, even a layer deeper, like you quickly touch upon, but it does also work in terms of galvanizing for a certain action. It also does indeed apply for a protest, right? Like there's a lot of empirical studies on why human behaviors work in a group, social dynamic versus individual. Like a lot of these super passive, pessimist like people by themselves, they wouldn't incite anything violent or radical like a riot or a protest. But once you put this individual, this very passive, pacifist individual in a group setting, a protest and group large violence become immediately viable for that person. It's extremely fascinating how human behavior flips once you put in a group setting for good Mm -hmm. and bad. What I just said is the extent of my knowledge, um, but I do have done some readings on that. It's very interesting. But also on top of that, like as I'm sure you know more, the menstrual cycle. Like when women in a group setting, obviously people say it in a very negative and funny way, but biologically there is 
like humans literally sync their cycles. Like women do sync their menstrual cycles. Like even empaths side, humans do get to rub off of each other's emotions to a certain degree. So I think it does talk about from the obvious that we are tribal creatures, which obviously are homo sapiens. But that aside, it really fundamentally affects and influences how we feel, how we act. So it's very, very profound. I read this one book and it was life changing too. It was like things affect me a lot. So it was a book that I like had to read in bits and pieces because it was so impactful that I couldn't like absorb it all at one time. That's like a lot of these books here. I start like, I don't know if you can see this, but I'm like halfway through most of them because when I pick them back up, I can't read them all in one sitting. They're just so instrumental to my life. But I read this really beautiful book, The Hidden Life of Trees, I believe it's called. Um, I'm forgetting the author. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it was exactly what we're describing. It's how nature operates in that way too. Like they communicate in ways that we don't really fully aware yet, right? Way beyond my knowledge of how trees function. But even just to me, that was so profound because uh, we take care of each other, you know, when we are in tune with nature and in tune with ourselves, like we are those community tribal creatures. And it was just really fascinating because they have this whole system that I had no idea about. So my boyfriend wanted to remove a tree in the backyard and I was like, okay, but first we have to have like a ceremony and like we have to pick out a good place where it's going to thrive and still give back to other trees. And he thought I was just bonkers, right? But um, yeah, I think it's a, an interesting way how we are integrated with nature. I'd like to just briefly double click on that of like, because you mentioned a tree to contribute to other trees. Is that from a like biological perspective, of like how their roots or leaves communicate? We'll definitely put the book that you mentioned in the show notes. But for our own curiosities and the listeners as well, like what do you mean by this tree contributing to other trees? So their root system is all connected underground and it's like the most important part of them too. But They'll take, I read about a tree taking less water because it knew that its neighboring tree needed more, or it will accept less pollinators because another flower needs more. So they know when others are having deficits and need assistance, they'll use protection, they'll release certain, like the scents, right, that will keep other beings away that will harm this tree that is maybe healing from something. The trees will do this. They are such in community and not with their own type of trees, right? It's a cliche. It's a community of trees that take care of each other of the different types. So they communicate through so many different ways. Everything that they do has that purpose of something. So like their behaviors have purpose. It was a fascinating, it's very small, but it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. And a beautiful analogy of what community can look like. You know, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can take away from nature both from, you know, the micro of how trees communicate and the macro of just how everything exists and isn't trying to do things, but rather just is, is something that I've thought a lot about in my time hiking and just being in nature. Uh, I understand that that's definitely a big part of your life and your own self-care, your own inspiration. What does your relationship with nature look like? What are some of like the things that you've learned from nature? Like, I'm just curious around your relationship with the trees in a few words. The trees are my biggest teachers. That's the fewest words I can give that to you. Nature has, I mean, it's always been a part of my life, but it's changed my life. I think I've learned more about mental health from the trees too, right? Than my my textbooks all the time. Being in tune with that and mother nature and how it operates is our biggest teacher, I think. Um, Being outside does something to me that I could never put into words. Uh, It's where I feel most connected, most supported, most everything. My best self, I am outside in the woods, bare feet on the ground, right? Which also has very good chemical 
qualities for our beings. School counseling is a high stress job, just counseling in general. Every job is stressful. I'll just say it that way. So I was feeling especially stressed at work the other day and really overwhelmed and overrun. And I can walk to my favorite trails. This is why I moved to come see it. It's where my heartbeat is. Um, these trails and a body of water that runs through it. I kayak all the time, but I went to the water. I just put my hands on the ground and said, please support me. Like I need a big hug from mama earth right now. Right. And I felt exactly that. Like I felt supported and comforted in a way that I hadn't felt in a very long time. So when I opened myself up to the teachings of mother nature and just, and it's so ingrained in like Buddhism too. So that's definitely helped me with my understandings and teachings and native American studies and philosophies are really integrated into my life too. Obviously I'm not native American, so I try not to appropriate everything that I learned, but I think they have some very, very beautiful life-saving concepts in their teachings and how they honored the earth. So that's been a very big part of how I convey myself to and how I interact of the world but the earth teaches me a lot right like that patience that I need maybe because I'm a fire right like I just feel like fire all the time so sometimes that mother nature teaches me that it's okay to do that right but then other times I need to be more like that that slow moving body of water or patient with the trees and grow slowly so and what you're looking for it will teach you if we uh bring the camera down below your waistline you're levitating as you've achieved this guru status. No, but this is, I think that's extremely befitting as we record this interview, which is Mental Health Month and Asian Heritage mm-hmm. Month, and also a week after the Earth Day. So I think this is extremely fitting. But seriously, I think you just share so much profound wisdom and insights, and it's going to take both of us, and I'm sure the listeners, a while to unpack how you view nature as a teachers, because I do agree, and that's actually something that we're going to talk about that's releasing our next week is how nature was and it still is the best teacher for him. So since we started this entire episode with one of your questionnaires from your question about you sharing your biggest achievements as living aligned and living by and through your values. The other piece that you shared was you talked about how you were able to buy a house recently, congratulations, and creating a sanctuary for yourself. It's like, what do you mean by that? Of course, sure, you bought a house, which was an amazing feat by itself. But what do you mean by creating a sanctuary for yourself? And I'm guessing it has some tangible and similarities with the tree pieces in nature you shared. Absolutely. So I did share about myself, too. I'm a very high energy fire type of person. So the thought of having a home for me is way different than just buying a house. I had always dreamed about this for years is creating a space that is full of everything that I love, right? Feelings too, not just the the stuff that's materialistic. So I had so many dreams and just as I was growing up, I couldn't wait to make a place my own, right? Because then we have that creative autonomy. We can do what we like with the house and make it into a home. We can decorate it how we want to. We can we can have the content be what we want to, like the books that's filled, the shows that are on the TV. Like I have decision-making power over all of that. I can do with the yard what I'd like to, right? I can honor nature in that way. And I really, I wanted a house with a good outdoor space too. So I got all of those things, very, very lucky. And every house buying story is beautiful, but I really am biased to mine. It was such a, a process because like I said, that relationship change last year made me want a house even more, right? I needed that part that was 
that extension of myself and I needed to make it that safe place for me. So I think that's really big just for my counseling career and just being a human being. Like we need a place that is sacred to us. We need a place that feels like we can be ourselves, that we can invest in, that we care about, that we make a beautiful love filled place. So I'm really conscientious of everything that's in my home and it's intentional, right? So like I want it to be fair trade. I want it to be thrifted. I want it to be homemade goods that I have in here. So even that piece has been something fun for me is, is seeking out those things that are purposeful in my home that make it feel like sacred space to me somewhere where I can thrive. Like when I come home from work, I have that place to de-stress just by my surroundings. So I want it to be full of beauty and full of love and full of purpose. And that's kind of what's been driving that, which again, aligns with my values for life. So I also want my home to be that extension of those values too. I don't want anything that's going to be a disservice to me and who I am trying to become and creating. Uh, So a home is that very literal sense. It needs to be that sacred space for me. I got really lucky with this house that has the outdoor space, the biggest backyard on the block, not to brag, but a really beautiful outdoor space with a little garden and a huge yard for my doggo to run around. Uh, I'm walking distance from my trails, which is the highest thing I could have achieved. That's really awesome to me. I'm two minutes from my my home of a golf course and I can walk downtown because I'm a huge community person too. So I need to be involved in that community world and the small businesses and everybody that goes down there for events. So my home is quite literally my sanctuary. Um, I love coming to it. I love taking care of it, which another tangent before when I was younger, I hated cleaning. I thought it was so dumb. Why would, you know, mom, why are you making me do this? Right. But now I view it as taking care of my space, like going through the yoga training too. It's something that taught me tending to the temple. So this is my temple me picking up and cleaning is tending to that uh, because it's keeping my space clean and organized. So that was a long-winded answer to your question, but that's kind of how I've been focused on making my house into a home that is a sanctuary. Yeah, we love that answer. I mean, length and all, for sure. It speaks to so many important things. I think the cleaning element uh, that even kind of applies internally as well, like tending to our own gardens, whether that's the gardens of physical, mental, spiritual health. A lot of the themes that we've talked through throughout this whole conversation and then even uh, seeing it as an extension of yourself, I think is really powerful. Just almost using it to live in alignment with your values to kind of bring those things almost from the action sense into the physical sense of how the home looks, how it feels, all of those things. Like I think it resonates because it's the physical manifestation of a lot of the themes and feelings that we've talked about throughout this conversation. So really, you know, I want to echo Ben's congratulations. It's incredible to see you like living and thriving in a place that you're making your own. And that's something that a lot of people aspire to, you know, kind of like having our own aligned physical place to live is, I think, a goal for many people. So to see you sitting and thriving in it, I think it would be a great place for you to give some advice. This is one of the questions that we pose to all of our guests, but we think it is a really unique experience to talk to people that are still within the experience. That's something that we thought a lot about with the Discover More brand is like we're talking to people that are like doing the things rather than some of the other podcasts that have like accomplished great things or like at the end of their stage, we're talking to people that are like still in it, which is something that we love the most. And I think it gives a different approach to what advice sometimes looks like. So if you were given a microphone or a billboard to pass down advice to some mentees in a mentorship program, 
that you know might be coming out of high school, might be coming out of college, but are really looking to take that next step in their life, really figure out who they are, figure out what they want to contribute to this world. What are some of the pieces of advice that you would leave them with? A million things come to mind, but I guess I would I would say that find something that keeps you going. Find that passion for you. Find something that you love to learn about and keep learning, whether that be like a, a career, which can be that passion for people and open up those self-reflective doors, right? But for me, it's really that spirituality and nature piece for me that gets me up every morning. So find whatever it is that motivates you and throw yourself into it in ways that you need to, right? Like keep learning about it, keep learning how it's going to impact your future self and keep learning about yourself too in that regard, but find your passion. For your ability to acquire a home, not just a house, is amazing. And that's what I meant by congratulations because like what Aiden said, many people do aspire to buy a house, but not many people get to acquire a home, right? You are able to create and purchase that physical house, but build it into a beautiful metaphysical home, which is things that I aspire to myself as well. And this is very meta for me uh, because this episode will be long released after I moved to LA. And I'm recording this episode right before I'm about to fly out to LA. The concept of time is very meta and very tricky, right? And by the time this episode is released, I'll be long equated into this new apartment my girlfriend and I are about to move into. And like the current apartment we live in, she moved in. So we never had that home building process. Quote unquote, of course, we don't own the apartments. It's not a condo. But I think it will be the first time I partake in that home co-creating curating process as someone else in this case my significant other so i'm very excited to partake that and to glimpse into that some of the experience you've already enjoyed long after you purchased the home but all to share that is really appreciate this you know episode and you know i think it's fitting to first conclude with this episode that we always share with everyone i think you're going to be the perfect guest to answer this question so it's two part part one is in alignment with our values since that's a major theme in your life and in align with our ethos and our values of the Discover More podcast of brands, we would like to challenge you as a guest of this week to discover more something about in your either professional life or personal life. Part B, for you to challenge our listeners to discover more something about their respective lives. Yeah, things came immediately to mind. Um, something that I would challenge myself to learn more about is uh, in Buddhism, there are precepts, so the ways of living that are highly honored and valued. There's a group at um, a temple nearby that I've been reluctantly uh, not participating as much as I should, right? I'm putting that limit on myself, but I do want to learn more about that. So it's a group that meets every week. They discuss kind of that eightfold path. They do chants and incantations. So the movements related to those chants too. So I want to learn more about that. I've been hesitant to do that for some reason. So I don't know why I'm going to challenge myself to sit with that a little bit more because I haven't jumped in yet. So I challenge myself to that. Uh, I challenge the listeners to find things that are sacred to them and vocalize them to somebody, you know, make it known in some way what is sacred to you, right? Even without the religious aspects of it, we all have things that mean a lot to us and are that sacred part of our being. So what are they for you? We love those questions. It's a perfect place to end today. Have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I mean, really want to just acknowledge you for the generous heart, generous spirit that you've really brought to not only this conversation, but also what you're bringing into the world. Um, it's amazing that, you know, we met randomly camping next to each other and then are able to connect years later around big topics that hopefully 
can help inspire or educate people that may be listening. So much appreciated, much gratitude for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and your generosity that Aiden talked about. And as always, we will include all your show notes, everything, all the resources, toolkits we've mentioned, and we'll include your personal account, Instagram, social media in the show notes below so people can connect with you wherever they are. But once again, seriously, thank you so much for today's time. This was a profound and very enlightening conversation for myself. And I hope that some of the listeners took away some similar light, just like I did from this episode. And I'm sure Aiden did as well. Um, With that being said to all the listeners as always we truly appreciate you for hopping on this journey this week to discover more something about from our collective experiences and we hope to discover more with you again next time thank you for listening to another episode of discover more we release a new episode every monday on spotify and apple podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.